Derek Jensen is an author and environmentalist. His most recent book is Bright Green Lies, How the Environmental Movement Lost Its Way and What We Can Do About It. This is Derek Jensen. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. All right. I'm here with uh, Derek Jensen. Thank you once again for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, so I wanted to talk to you last time. We've talked a few times now, and it seems like uh, a lot of the times when we chit-chat, uh, we go off on uh, a lot of discursive lanes, which are great. And last time we were going to talk about uh, Bright Green Lies, and I think we went off on a few of those uh, discursive lanes. And so this time I wanted to actually talk to you about the book, uh, Bright Green Lies, um, a lot about the environmental movement. Um, perhaps describe up front what this, the big idea of this book is and why you decided to write it now? Well, I didn't actually decide to write it now. I decided to write it 12 years ago, 13, 14 years ago. Um, it took a long time to write. And um, the, the start of the book really was I was a columnist for Orion. And one of the editors there thought it would be a good idea if I interview, if I, sorry, had a debate with some guy who was a quote, bright green environmentalist. And I'd never heard of the term at that point. And I said, sure. And I looked up a little bit about bright green environmentalism, basically bright green environmentalism. We, we, we have a little chart near the beginning of the book where we talk about the different, the spectrum of environmentalization of, of environmentalism. And, uh, so deep greens, which would be probably us, the living planet and non-humans both have the right to exist. Human flourishing depends on a healthy ecology. To save the planet, humans must live within the limits of the natural world. Therefore, a drastic transformation needs to occur at social, cultural, economic, political, and personal levels. And then one level up from that would be the lifestyleists. Humans depend on nature and technology probably won't save environmental issues, but political engagement is either impossible or unnecessary. The best we can do is practice self-reliance, small-scale living, and other personal solutions. Withdrawal will change the world. That's not us, obviously. Um, and the next group is Bright Greens, which is, and then there's other groups too, but this is what, what's important for now. Environmental problems exist and are serious, but green technology and design, along with ethical consumerism, will allow a modern high-energy lifestyle to continue indefinitely. The Bright Greens attitude amounts to, it's less about nature and more about us. So I was set up to interview this, to, to, to do a debate with this guy. And I insisted that the debate be written and not like, uh, you know, just on the telephone or something. Because yeah. I knew that the other person was going to lie. And I didn't, I don't have... I've never had the sort of mind that has a rote memory such that <clears throat> I can tell you the percentage of copper that's recycled every year. I don't, you know, I, and it's the same with, I mean, I love baseball, but I'm, I've never been the sort of person who can tell you that in 1983, George, Bat, George Brett batted, you know, 337 with 27 home runs. I, I would have been a terrible linguist. I'd go, Anonymous. Also, in I remember in you know debate team in high school, one of the things they teach you is to speak really fast so that you can get as many facts out there, quote unquote facts out there as possible, and you just you light as many fires 
as you can so that your opponent, rather than giving their argument, has to spend their time putting out fires. Well, well that's a great point. And that's, that's, that's why I insisted that the thing be, be written. Um, and so we, uh, he agreed that we did, everybody agreed that we would do it by writing. And we flipped the coin and I was the one who went first. And the question was, what is the problem? And I laid out the problem, including that this civilization has been killing the planet for 6,000 years. Civilization is inherently unsustainable. I showed the reasons it's unsustainable. I showed how it's functionally unsustainable, which we can talk about if you want. And um, about five minutes after the other guy received that one, he wrote back and said, nah, I can't do this. It has to be talking back and forth. And yeah, it's because basically, honestly, I had checkmated him in one. Um, because you can't come back and say, if, if somebody has shown that civilization is inherently unsustainable and has been for many thousands of years, and you show how that's the case, there's really nowhere they can go to say, well, if we just recycle more efficiently, then things will be fine. So anyway, so we did the, we did the interview or the, the, the debate on the phone, and it was really dreadful uh, because uh, he was saying things like, well, I said, okay, one of the ways we, we know that, that um, civilization is inherently unsustainable is it relies on mining. And every hard rock mine on the planet has harmed groundwater and, 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 and surface water. And it is not possible to, I mean, there's never been a single one. And so how are you going to make mining sustainable? Any way of life that requires mining will not be sustainable. And he said, well, we can have 100% recycling. And that didn't seem to make any sense to me. But like I said, we were just on the telephone and like, it devolved into, no, we can't. Yes, we can. No, we can't. Um, right. To, to that point, would it be possible, even if, let's say, mines polluted necessarily the surrounding bodies of water, um, a, a, a bright green environmentalist might say, you know, hey, we can invent the technology that cleans the water of these pollutants. Do you buy that? Um, I have a friend who, you know, the, the, the phrase, would you bet your life on that? Um, sure. Yeah. My friend has a modified version, which is, I'll say, you know, would you bet your life on that? And you said, well, I bet yours. And, um, and what they're doing is, it's not betting the engineers' lives. It's not betting the miners' lives. It's betting the lives of those who live there. And they're perfectly willing to bet their lives. I, you know, I, I wrote this, we're getting discursive again, but I read this, um, no this uh, not wrote, I wrote this essay maybe 12, 13 years ago that I was pretty pleased with. That, you know, I'm not known for providing technological, simple technological solutions to the problems we face, but I did, I did come up with one. It was a modest proposal for and I mean the literary reference there, it was a moder it was modest proposal that uh, remote controlled cigar cutters can save the world. And the way, have you read this essay? I, I haven't, but please tell. Um, yeah, it's, it's basically that any engineer, like, so in this, in this theoretical situation you're saying, so they, they say this mine will 
Well, this will clean up all the water and it'll be just as pure as before they've encountered the mine, everything's gonna be fine. You say, great. So all the males associated with the project from the designer to the financiers to the people who are actually working the heavy equipment, all the males have remote controlled cigar cutters attached to their genitals. And if the project works the way they say, because you know, the, the, the Forest Service will put out like thousands and thousands of timber sales every year that all of their environmental impact statements and all of the environmental assessments all sometimes show that they will have no significant impact. It's a coincidence. It's extraordinary how all of them show this. So it's great. You put out a timber sale, they attach a remote controlled cigar cutter to your genitals. And uh, if it in fact has no significant impact, it doesn't harm voles, it doesn't harm the soil, it doesn't harm, great. Doesn't harm the, the rivers. It's the same with the mine here. So, you know, as long as it's great, then um, you just have a remote controlled cigar cutter on you for the rest of your life, because of course problems could come 30 years down the road. But if at any point there are problems, the problems you said wouldn't happen, then and uh, there you go, your genitals. The point is they this would cause them to put their, uh, you know, as the phrase is money where your mouth is, is put them, cause them to put their genitals where their mouth is, which probably some of them tried anyway. But leaving that sure. aside too, um, there would be, the point is that this, this whole essay was about how people make these claims, but they don't have much at stake. And in fact, the right, Forest right. Service, for example, does this intentionally. Their timber sales planners will stay in a place for a few years and then they move them on because that way nobody can get mad at them. They go to the new place and you know, as the stream is silted over from the clear cuts at the old place, people can go to the Forest Service and say, you did this terrible thing. It's like, oh, nah. That was Jim who was here five years ago. He's gone. And where Jim is now gone, Jim is saying, oh, no, that was Roger. Roger's long gone. And so, I mean, really, I mean, the whole culture is based on um, privatizing profits and externalizing costs. But anyway, and, and then, yes, then yeah. also it just, so it has never happened. I wouldn't believe them if they said it. And and they would need, for me to trust them at all, they would need to stake their lives and say, yeah, okay, so if this water ends up even one jot, if the, if the fish population goes down by 1%, my life is forfeit, then I might believe them, but I'm not going to believe them until they say that, because it's never happened. There, there has never been a hard rock mine in the world that hasn't polluted groundwater. Anyway, so, uh, so he's saying all these absurd things about how we can have 100% metals recycling, and we get off the exchange or off the, the debate and I go look it up and it takes less than, literally less than five minutes for me to find out that copper is one of the most recyclable materials. And I'm making the numbers up here because I can't remember them, but, but you know, 70% of copper is already recycled and that only makes 30% of the demand because the demand goes up every year. So first off, even if you had 100% recycling, your economy would have to be at most steady state. Um, and then also there's lots of uses of metals that are not recyclable. For one thing, they're turned into alloys and it's a pain in the ass to 
to uh, de-alloy the material, to, to purify the material again. And a lot of times you can, it's incredibly toxic, incredibly energy expensive process. And, <clears throat> um, and lots of uses of aluminum, for example, are simply, which is, which is pretty recyclable stuff. A lot of the uses are simply not recyclable. A lot of it's used in paint. Um, it's used in, you know, aluminum foil, that's not recycled. And it's used in, and again, made into a lot of alloys that can be mutually exclusive. It's, and it's also incredibly toxic uh, and energy expensive to do that. And so you can say, you can just say, oh, we could have 100% recycling and powered by wind and solar. And that sounds great. But then once you start actually analyzing any of the, uh, the reality of it, it ends up not true. So, so in five minutes, I did that. And it's like, well, this is ridiculous. But then I realized that there was, that this movement is actually much bigger than I thought. I was like, well, okay, I guess I know my next book. And uh, oh. then that, then we can talk more. Uh, so, so basically the book was, is um, broken down by the different uh, technologies that are proposed to save the earth, solar, wind, um, batteries, uh, efficiency, uh, green cities, recycling um well, let's let's talk about recycling because you you do have a, a chapter dedicated to that in the book and we just talked about it now with the idea of 100 percent recycling even that with demand increasing um doesn't meet all your energy needs uh or resource needs um well, but recycling in and of itself um i've heard certain arguments that actually doesn't do very much uh, a lot of I know a lot of recycling bins actually just get thrown in the trash anyway. Um, what is, do, do you have a, a problem per se with recycling or just how it's conducted? Um, okay, for the most part, i just get this off. All the writers of the book, that's me, Max and Lier, um, we all we all recycle, but we don't pretend that it actually is accomplishing much. And, and I mean, I'm, okay, first off, we need to separate. There was, back in the 70s, there were, there were three of these. They were reuse, reduce, and recycle. And reuse and reduce sort of fell by the wayside because they don't serve capitalism. You can't make an industry out of them quite so much. It's big an industry. And um, I reuse, oh, here's, here's a great example. I, I, I wear clothes and this is, this is not environmental. I'm not being Mr. Mr. Environmental here. I'm simply a, a cheapskate and kind of obsessive. Okay, first look at this. This is my sweatshirt I'm wearing. You can see it's falling apart. And then okay. the turtleneck I'm wearing. It's also, yes. The, the the neck of the turtleneck yeah, come up over your head. Um, but it's got a few more uses in it. Yeah. Um, anyway, and the same with, with paper. I use paper until every little scrap is covered and then I throw it away. And I'm, but but that doesn't actually help the planet. You know, it's just like it's it's I find it personally satisfying, but it's got not much to do with 
anything. Um, so, and, and the, the problem also comes that um, the, basically when, what recycling there is, is, is still driven by economics in that the main, the main function of it is to provide metals that are lower cost than, than original mining. And think about it, if, if the, if the cost, you're, you're buying, you're, you need to buy six tons of copper every day for your industrial process. And I'm making the numbers up. I have no idea what the price of copper is, but if copper costs you 10 cents a pound uh, for copper that's been mined and it costs you 30 cents a pound for copper that's been recycled, you're gonna buy the copper that's been mined if you're getting six tons a day. And if you don't, then some company in China is gonna buy it cheaper and everybody's gonna buy the Chinese stuff instead of yours. And, but what it does is a certain amount, a certain amount does make economic sense. And so it happens. And when it doesn't happen, sometimes they make laws, they being various countries, make laws requiring that a certain amount be recycled. And I got no problem with those laws existing. It's just, we shouldn't pretend that they're actually saving the planet. I remember, God, 20 years ago, um, environmentalists, some environmentalists got very upset because they found out that when they recycle their tin cans, the zinc, I think it is, that's in the tin cans, whatever, whatever it is. I know tin cans, you'd think tin, but whatever metals were in there, once they separated them, they were being sold to mining companies and used in the process of mining. And a lot of environmentalists are like, oh my God, so my recycling is actually helping mining. And the mining companies are like, what do you care? I mean, it's just zinc. And what does it matter if it's used for this process or this process? It's taking a certain percent. And I, I got to tell you, I don't really disagree with the, the mining companies for once that is like, it's just zinc. You know, the, the entire global economy is a huge money and atrocity laundering machine. And it's like chocolate, you know, it's I'm, I'm by fair trade chocolate. How do you know? Because once the chocolate goes into the system, you don't know if it was uh, harvested by child slaves in one part of Africa or done quote sustainably in another part of Africa. It's the same with zinc. Once it goes into the, into the uh, consumer, no, it's not the consumer stream because it's not actually going to consumers. But once it goes into the uh, production supply chain, then yeah. it's just zinc. That's the whole point of things being fungible. Um, which I don't know if I've ever been able to use that word in an interview before, so thanks. Um, and so another problem with the recycling is that a lot of these factories are hugely expensive, hugely toxic, and the processes themselves are toxic, and the stuff never should be should have been made in the first place. And you know, one example that I use in the book of a of a kind of sweet, wonderful little thing that even that doesn't really help is I learned maybe 10 years ago that uh, mealworms eat, uh, they can eat and digest uh, uh, styrofoam. So I was kind of interested in that and I, I 
I got myself some mealworms. I'd raise mealworms. I'd, I had some pet lizards when I was a kid and I'd raise mealworms. And so I knew it's not very hard. And um, <clears throat> so I started raising mealworms and feeding them a lot of styrofoam and uh, they eat it. And in fact, do you want me to show you the mealworms? Um, sure. Yeah. Okay. Why not? We'll do that in a second. Um, this will be the first, the first interview where the mealworms are featured. Anyway, um, the, uh, I was then started fantasizing. Like I would set up this entire factory where everybody from the region brings their styrofoam and you pour it into these huge vats and, and then it just gets chewed up and, and they actually break it down. So, so I, I've taken their poop and I put it on plants and on, on soil for houseplants. And within a day or two, mold is eating it. They're, they're actually breaking the bonds, turning this into the food chain. Um, oh. It's kind of like termites can digest cellulose or yeah, cellulose from trees. We can't, same deal. Mushroom, uh, mealworms have, a, uh, have bacteria in their guts who can break the chemical bonds of styrofoam. That's why plastic doesn't decay is because nobody has evolved, not many, people have evolved to that's that's what decay is is somebody eating something and that's why plastic doesn't decay is because nobody evolved to eat it so they for whatever reason have evolved to eat styrofoam polystyrene and wax moths have evolved interestingly enough to be able to eat polyethylene um i haven't ever tried that one because they fly around they'd be a, a more difficult to do um but the problem is that, so they convert the styrofoam into body mass and poop, and that's great, both of which are entering the food stream, not the human food stream, but I don't, that's not the point. Um, the problem is that I read that like most animals, maybe all animals, 80% of the carbon they ingest is released as carbon dioxide. So if you eat a pound of carbon today, whether it's a huge pizza or a steak or a cabbage, it doesn't matter. 80% of the carbon that was in that is gonna be exhaled carbon dioxide. And so basically all I'm doing, I'm still excited about it, but all I'm doing is converting styrofoam into atmospheric carbon. Like that's great. And that's the best example you can do. You know, you would think that that would have no bad consequences. So now it's time for a quick, a quick uh, mealworm field tour. Let's do it. Breaking ground here. Yeah. Well, we're also uh, we're we're sure not being discursive. <laughs> it happens. Okay, here I go. Oh wow. So for people who are listening to this, what we're looking at right now is no, you're good. Uh, a bunch of pieces of plat uh, of styrofoam rather, and it looks like it's been reduced to Swiss cheese uh, by these mealworms. How how long has that been in there? How long does it take them to get to that state? Oh, this well, on this piece right here. Yeah, that's been in a few days. Um, these, that one here has probably been in a few months. It's a long process. Yeah. I also feed them cabbage and other things. Wow. Like there's a cucumber peel that they, that they love. 
and I imagine they take care of the uh, the cucumber a little bit more quickly than the styrofoam. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, wow. There's another one. Wow. So you just have three sort of oh, like no, shoebox size. 16. And then what 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 made you start saying, okay, I'm gonna get all these mealworms together and, and put plat put styrofoam in their their little buckets? Well that is a that is a, a good question because that's pretty much the life I live is, and you know, I, I credit my mom for all this, but my mom always taught me that if you're interested in something, then you should explore it. And, um, you know, my mom's rule on buying books for me when I was a kid was she would buy me any book I wanted as long as I would read it. And, um, so if it's a good I'm rule. Interested? In, um, I think. Well, what the heck? I'll, I'll, I'll look into it. So, <clears throat> you know, ten years ago or twelve years ago, or whatever, I, I saw the article and thought, hmm, I wonder if it's really true. Because that's another thing is I was taught very early on to just not believe anything. So I read an article in the newspaper about how mealworms can eat this. I don't believe it. I'm gonna try it. Yeah. And, and I've always liked insects anyway. So um, I started off with, you know, I just went to the pet store and I bought one little, you know, one of those styrofoam containers, which they long since ate styrofoam containers full of mealworms and they have uh, gone forth and multiplied. There you go. Um, question that I wanted to ask you um, really related to the book. Uh, is about your, your chapter on wind energy. It's one of these green technologies. Um, so, and, and it's been a, a while since I read it. Is, is the problem with it just the disruption it causes to the surrounding ecosystem? Uh, like sometimes birds fly into uh, these wind turbines, et cetera. Um, or, or what is uh, more broadly your objection to it? Well, there's, there's the, the book really has three three. There are three problems with all of this. One of them is that in a larger sense, environmentalism has become less about saving wild places and wild beings and more about sustaining this way of life. And that's a horrible rhetorical coup. Um, you can have 100,000 people march on the streets of New York. And if you ask them, what are, your, what are you marching for? They're saying to save the earth. You say, what are your demands? And they say, we want subsidies for wind and solar industry. And that the environmentalism has basically been turned into a lobbying industry for a sector of industrial capitalism. So that's one problem. Um, and the second is that, yeah, there are on-site problems and we discuss those. And in fact, uh, wind and solar are, according to some studies, the single largest threat to wild habitat currently and over, or I don't know about currently, but over the next 50 years, they're proposed to be the single largest threat to habitat over urbanization, over increased <clears throat> mining, over, um, like I said, urban sprawl, over conversion to farmland. is It's a major, major threat to wild places. And so there's the on-site problems, which aren't merely 
merely, you know, bats having their eardrums exploded and birds getting whacked in half. Um, it's also that the land has been converted from native to, to industrial park usage. There's roads have been popped in, um, there's the noise, um, there's the, uh, the fact that they apply herbicides around these, the fact that the, the habitat is no longer, is no longer suitable for, for the wild creatures who lived there before. Uh, there are places where they cut down, cut down forests to put them in. Uh, it's happening all over. And so, I mean, you actually have so-called environmentalists who are arguing for deforestation. And then the other thing that's, the other part that's really big in the whole book is we do what everybody should be doing for everything, which is a full cost accounting. And, you know, the, the, the wind turbines don't just, you know, you don't pluck them from the wind turbine tree in the fall and, and place them on the ground and they grow. They're made, they're made with materials ripped from the earth. They're made from mining. They're made from, we, we follow the supply chain back on the various materials and um, they cause harm at every step of the way from the original mining through the transportation, through the use on site to ultimate disposal. Um, it's not, as, as Max Wilbert has said on film, this shit ain't green. And it, and there's there, another problem that we talk about extensively. I mean, that, that's the thing is, the question I always ask is, do desert tortoises want this solar installation on their land? Do little brown bats want this solar installation on their land? No, it's the same externalizing costs, privatizing profits that's been going on with every other industry. And a lot of times industrial people will say, well, but it's cheaper. I mean, it's, it's better for the planet. We'll sacrifice this place here, which you notice it's not their place. It's, you know, non-human place. We'll sacrifice this place here, but that's a less of a sacrifice than it would be if they put in more oil and gas. But you know what they've done is they've, they've given us two choices. Do you want oil and gas or do you want solar? It's like, no, I want neither and neither does any non-human on the planet. And there's another problem with this too, which, which is the Jevons paradox. Did we talk about that last time? Um, I'm not sure. Okay, it's, it's really important um, and central to all this. Jevons paradox, Jevons was a 19th century uh, economist and he studied how coal, if you used, if you found, if you came up with ways to more efficiently burn coal, you would think that that would reduce coal use. Because if it only takes you one piece of coal to cook dinner instead of two, well, your coal use went down. And if this happens, you know, you, you're running a business and you have a more efficient boiler where it takes one ton of coal instead of two tons of coal to run your factory for the day, well, that's great. You can reduce it. But that's not how it works that what actually happens is increased efficiency in coal use leads to increased demand for coal because people find more uses for it. So instead of actually cutting your energy use in half for your factory, what you do is you build another factory. 
And that also means that you end up uh, having to use all the other resources as well. You know, there's also the brick for the extra factory, which means there's more core used to fire the brick, you know, more raw materials come in, which means more coal used in their mining. And so what he found is that increased efficiency with coal leads to increased demand. And studies have since been done on lots of other resources like various metals. You know, if you find a way to use copper more efficiently, efficiently copper use goes up. Uh, if you find a way to, I mean, it doesn't matter. I mean, think about this. Oh, a great example is that houses have become, I believe about 50% more efficient than they were in the United States, 50% more energy efficient than they were in the 70s or 60s. Um, but at the same time, the houses have become 50% larger. So the energy use has remained constant for that. And of course, growing population means more houses too. Um, and this is true across them. And what this means for energy is that for many, many, many thousands of years, humans used non-human and human labor, often slavery, and they used uh, wood and for their sources of energy. Um, and then when they brought coal on, wood use for energy did not decrease. It increased and coal added on. When they, when they brought oil online, coal use did not decrease, it increased and oil was added on. And then when they brought hydro online, none of the others decreased, hydro added on. <clears throat> so all that's happening with any of this is that they're tacking on and not in fact substituting out. So the choice is not oil or solar, the choice, the, and that's, that's not even the honest choice. The choice ends up being oil and solar. And there's another part of this too, which we haven't talked about, which is like Ozzy Zenner talks about how they're not really alternative energies, they're alternative fossil fuel because fossil fuels are absolutely necessary at every step of the, the process to, from the mining to the transportation, to the installation. And then there is the fact that, um, entered the, that wind and solar only produce, only generate electricity. And there are, that's only 20% of energy use is electricity. 80% is, is not electricity. That would be things like most cars, um, heating, oil, oil heating for a boiler in a building or a wood-burning stove. 80% um, of the energy across the whole culture is true for almost every country. It's, it's within a percentage or two of 80% um, is not electricity, which is all that can be used for. And they'll argue, well, gosh, but batteries are so great. Well, first off, more than 99% of the electrical storage currently in the world is basically called pumped hydro, which means they make two big dams and they, they pump water up when, when you're getting, when the wind's blowing really hard, they pump water up. And then when the wind's not blowing, they, they have a comeback down. And 
cloud, we're getting into the thicket of, of technical details, but it ends up that a lot of times because of efficiency, because at every step of the way, when you're pumping water, you're losing efficiency, you're using energy to, you know, there's friction in the water, there's, there's, there's all sorts, there is no such thing as 100% efficiency with any process. You're gonna lose energy at some point. And because of various losses of efficiency in this pumping of hydro, a lot of times you'd frankly would have been, the, the earth would have been better off if they just would have burned the coal in the first place. In, in terms of all the additional electricity that is required to pump it back and forth. Plus you've got two big dams that are destroying the landscape there. Um, so that's 99% of the storage. And then all the batteries have their own problems with supply chains, et cetera. Um, and then there's also the fact that, I don't remember all the numbers, but basically I think diesel has, I don't know, call it 45 kilojoules per kilogram. And it doesn't matter what that means. Just the number of 45 is what's important that compare that to lithium batteries, or I don't know, like one or two, uh, oh, I think it's megajoules per kilogram. So it's 45 megajoules per kilogram versus one or two. So it's, the point is that diesel and gasoline are incredibly energy dense storage. It's, a, it's an incredibly energy dense way to store, to store an incredibly dense way to store energy. And an example, I'll make all my rambling a bit more clear, that a diesel semi can go about 600 miles on what, 100 pounds of gas? You know, however much gas it takes to fill a diesel tank for a semi, goes about 600 miles. Um, and to, to go the equivalent, that's a 60,000 pound payload. To go the equivalent 600 miles, you'd have to have 55,000 pounds of batteries, which means you only have a 5,000 pound payload, which means what's the point? And, you know, look around right now. Like, you know, I see books on the shelf. I see the bookshelf. I see lights above you or a roof or something or glass or I don't know what it is. Um, and I've got a couch right here and then a, a light fixture right there. All of those things were taken around by trucks. They were probably on a half dozen trucks each. Um, the, the wood was cut in a forest and then it was taken on a logging truck to a mill. And then it was processed there, probably taken to another mill and then taken from there to a lumber wholesaler and then taken from there to a bookshelf shop or a bookshelf factory, and then taken from there to you know Home Depot or wherever, and then and then you brought it home in a car presumably, and you know so there's many trucks were involved in that, and it's just absurd to think that we're staking the planet. No, 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 because that doesn't help the planet anyway. We're staking the continuation of the economy, which is what they want on these, the, the technological equivalent of wishing upon a star, of hoping that something good will happen. Let me ask you something, because a lot of what we're talking about right now uh, comes very much from the sort of the degrowth school of thought within environmentalism, which basically says that endless economic growth really is the core of the problem. Kind of like what you were talking about earlier, where even if you have 100% efficiency in recycling, uh, the demand for resources continues to increase. So you're going to have to continue mining. Um, what about the counter argument that some people give that poor countries like China or India, uh, that they really need economic growth 
in order to lift those people out of poverty? Um, well, first, any economic growth that happens for anyone comes at the expense of the natural world. And it also comes at the expense of the humans who live in the place to be devastated. It's like I knew this woman who was married to a guy from Bangladesh. And in his lifetime, so, you know, I'm 61. I think my friend was, I don't know, 55, say. And so let's say the guy was also 55. So, you know, when he was 15, he would go to his mother in Bangladesh and he would say, mom, what would you like for lunch? And she would say, go catch us some fish. And he would go to the river and he would catch fish. And then he would bring the fish for dinner. And that's how the people in that community had lived more or less forever. And now the river is so polluted by industry that they import their fish from Iceland. And so people can talk all they want about economic development and the necessity, but even among the poor, it's like, God, 10, 11, oh God, no, this is 20 some years ago. 20 some years ago now, I asked Anurata Mittal, former director of Food First, if the people of India would be better off if the global economy disappeared tomorrow. And I said, of course they would, um, because there are former granaries of India that now export dog food and tulips to Europe. And there are people who are starving because their land was taken for these cash crops. And then, I mean, that still seemed kind of weird to me. So I asked uh, Bandana Shiva this a few years ago and she said the same thing. And, she, and I said, well, what about the people who live in Mumbai? What about in a city where you're really dependent on it? She said, yeah. okay, in India, we are more recently the people in the city don't live in the slums because they want to. They live there because they were driven off their land. And so if you stopped stealing their land, they were still there a few years ago and get them through one season of subsistence farming and they could be back. And what's always ignored in, okay, I just interviewed somebody a few weeks ago about, um, she's an activist who, works on the Mekong River region and how the dams are killing. First off, you're, you're gonna, I mean, given my, my buildup here, you're gonna know at least where it is. Do you know what the largest animal migration on the planet is? It's not, it wasn't buffalo on the plains. It wasn't the Serengeti ungulates. It's neither though. By weight, it was the, um, Mekong Delta catfish. It's a huge catfish, like 600 pounds. And they migrate mm. up and down the, the Mekong. They used to. They're now extremely rare because of dams. And the point is that the people who live, lived, past tense, some of them who still live, along those rivers are, when the dam goes in, there's their way of life where they, that, that they've lived for thousands of years or hundreds of years at least. And so yes, I am not saying that a Western style of life or just forget Western, I'm not saying. So did we talk about Lewis Mumford's Magnificent Bribe? I think so. 
Well, basically what it is, is that why do we not resist the murder of the planet? People can talk. I mean, even like the New York Times has talked about, oh, humans may go extinct in 100 years. And Richard Dawkins talked about humans possibly going extinct in 100 years. And all these people, and they call me crazy for wanting to bring down civilization, even though they're blithely talking about how civilization could make the planet uninhabitable for humans within 100 years. It's like, I think I'm actually the pro-human one here um, because I don't really want us to go extinct. Um, and the point is that we have so close, more closely identified with the system itself and with the goodies it brings us than we do with life on the planet, the continuation of human or non-human life. And so Mumford in 1964, I think it was, called about the magnificent bribe. He said, how did we, how did we give up so easily to the destroyers? And his answer is simply because they gave us a share of the goodies and a promise of more. And so one reason we don't resist this madness is because on a superficial level, we get access to ice cream 24 seven. On a, on a more personal level, you know, I've had open heart surgery. I've had, I'm on medicines that saved my life from the Crohn's disease. And um, I would be dead without them. I'm fully aware of that. But just like I said earlier that the logic of capitalism makes it so you're going to buy the cheapest copper you can for your for your business it's also you know once you've been converted into believing and your experience is that your food comes from the grocery store and your water comes from the tap you'll defend to the death those systems because your life depends on it but that's because the system has inserted itself in between you and the real source of life which is which is the land. If your experience is your land, your food comes from the land and your water comes from river, you'll defend to the death those. And so this ties us back, this does have to do with bright green lies because, because one of the things I said early on is the environmental movement has become, has, has been perverted away from being about protecting wild places and wild beings to sustaining this culture. And one of the things we argue, the first and most important thing that people need to do is to transfer their loyalty away from the system and to just keep asking, you know, what do blue whales want? What do delta smelt want? What do coho salmon want? What do uh, ruby-throated hummingbirds want? And um, we're, we're not the only species on the planet. It's just, we act like it. Well, he, he, here's a question, uh, and I'm sort of playing devil's advocate here. It's true that animal species compete with each other in the wild. Uh, they kill each other for territory and for resources. I mean, anyone who has seen even chimps attack within their own species uh, and seen you know, how closely related we are to chimps knows that on some level, this seems to be um, a, a component of the natural world as well. Um, and certainly, I, you could say we've gone way overboard in terms of extinguishing entire species. Um, but where do we draw the line? I mean, certainly, if we were to say, uh, if we were to be like Jainists and, and not even sit on the grass for not wanting to harm it, um, I feel like that would be difficult, enough, if not impossible, for most people to follow. <clears throat> Yeah, I, I agree. It's, it's also absurd. 
It's, right. um, I mean, there, I, I may or may not have mentioned to you before that there's tons of bears here. <clears throat> and I see bear paths through the grass and through the forest that just by walking, they, they create a path just like we would when we walk. And, and I'm also fully aware that life feeds off life and that uh yeah so so i i just i i have a book coming out in a month or so about how marijuana legalization has really harmed marijuana culture and harmed the small small marijuana farmers have been devastated by it and excuse me i live in northern california and I grow small amounts. And at one point, my, my plants got aphids. Um, and I was growing them inside. And I put them outside. And it was pretty cool. Uh, because within 10 minutes, there were all these wasps flying around eating the honeydew that the aphids exude. But the really cool part is a day later, there were all these itty bitty little black dots all over the plant leaves. And I looked more closely, I looked with a magnifier, and what these little black dots were, were parasitic wasps, anywhere from the size of the point of a pen up to maybe a, a half or three-eighths of an inch. And I've always been interested by parasitoid wasps. They're, they're absolutely horrifying. Um, they're, they're actually cool, as long as you're not who they eat. And what these parasitoid wasps do is they lay an egg inside an aphid and then the baby wasp grows and then comes out like that one scene in Alien. And, um, and then I went out a couple of nights later and there were all these little orange dots on the leaves. I looked those up and those were, there's, and there was a bunch of gnats flying around or midges. It ends up there are these midges who lay eggs in the soil that who hatch pretty quickly, turning into orange grubs who then go up and eat aphids. <clears throat> life can be really tough out there. And life can be, I mean, if you're, especially, I'm so glad I'm not an insect, you know? There are some nasty ways Me to too. <laughs> Um, You know, I'd much rather, you know, if, if I'm going to get nailed by a predator, I'd much rather that a, jaguar you know put they got really strong jaws because the way they kill is by biting into the skull itself so it's like one bite into the skull and you're dead i'd, I'd much rather that than have some parasite you know come out yeah. like the thing an alien anyway the point is yes i'm fully aware of that but the important thing is yes there is a certain amount of competition um but what we don't but in in sort of projecting capitalism onto the natural world, we have forgotten that it's not simply competition. And so we can get books like Selfish Gene, et cetera, but the creatures who survive in the long run have survived in the long run. And you don't survive in the long run by harming your habitat. You survive in the long run by actually improving your habitat on its own terms. I mean, think about it. 
if your if your habitat has a hundred units of health, and every year you reduce it by one percent, in a hundred years you've gone to zero. That's overshooting carrying capacity, and yet, how do we how do we think that the world got to be so wild and fecund and full of life that's fecund in the first place? It did that by all the creatures living and dying, all the plants living and dying. So salmon actually make forests healthier by their presence. And the forests, meanwhile, make salmon healthier by their presence. Trees give off hormones in the fall, telling fish in the streams to calm down. You know, it's gonna be it's gonna be cool for a while. You need to like they give you a little bit of uh, I don't know, a little bit of uh, ambient or something, or I don't know, Valium or I don't know what it is. You know, they, right. they, they, they calm them down so that they eat less. Um, bears get, uh, I just read the other day that salmon have some chemicals in them that tell bears to, to start slowing down. The, the fall run salmon tell bears to start, hey, it's time to start maybe getting a little bit sleepy. Um, bears love to kill trees and especially they love to kill dug firs. And I was talking with a friend of mine who's a fisheries biologist. I said, so what do you think the ecological purpose of bears killing trees is? And he, he just made this up. This could have nothing to do with anything, but I thought it was really interesting. He said he lives in a uh, mixed dug fir, uh, tan oak, I think it is, forest. And he said the dug firs reproduce faster. They reproduce younger. They grow faster. They basically have every advantage except bears like them. So bears help maintain the balance and the balance between tan oak and dug fir in that particular forest. So my point is that, yes, there is some competition and we've seen that where, you know, the biggest baby bird maybe throws the others out or, you know, there's, there's the strongest, healthiest, biggest bear gets the best fishing site. We've seen all that. And I'm not denying any of that, but that's only part of the picture. Another part of the picture is if you harm your habitat, you don't survive. Yeah. Well said. And uh, we're about in an hour here, so I don't want to take up any more of your time, but uh, I'm glad that we got to talk about uh, some of the main ideas of the book, Bright Green Lies. Um, and you have another book you said coming out in a month. Does it have a title yet? Marijuana, a love story. There you go. Uh, well, Derek. It's so funny. I tried to, <clears throat> okay, I failed at a, as a writer at something, but I ended up accomplishing something different. I wanted to write the book with the tone of a thriller. I set out specifically, you know, it's like, you know, oh, here we are driving and are the cops going to catch us as we're, you know, we got four pounds of pot in the trunk or something, you know, it's like, so I wanted to sort of Jack Reacher style or some sort of thriller. And I get 90% of the way through the book and I realize I've completely failed in writing a thriller style. But what I did accomplish was writing a romantic comedy style because um, lots of jokes and everything. And the love story, it has all the, all the, 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 the standard parts of a romantic comedy um, because I've never done any drugs at all. So it's like, 
mismatched couple. Um, and I was for a time the worst grower in the world. Um, so, you know, it's like a mismatched couple. One of the people's really incompetent when they try to start the relationship. It's like, I've got all the tropes of a, uh, of a rom-com. So, and, and, and it really ends up being accurate that there's one, so I wrote it with a friend of mine, Tony Savaggio, who is a long time, he's a sociologist, long time. He's been working on marijuana issues for decades. And he shared it with somebody in his office and the academic got so mad. He started yelling at him at the title, Marijuana, A Love Story, because that's not academic. That's not, but the book is, um, what it does really well, I think is, yeah, I could do, and we, we have all the facts and figures on how many family farmers are being driven out in California. But what it really did that I'm really proud of is it captured the quirkiness of this movement and captured one of the blurbs is basically this book reminds us why we fell in love with the plant in the first place and why those of us who are so disappointed with how legality has happened pushed for legality in the first place and that makes me really happy well there you go and, and i look forward to checking that out once it's available um derek thank you once again for taking the time to talk with me always a pleasure okay, and so uh it was fun. And uh, I thought your questions were way better than my answers. No, no, no. I, I very much enjoyed your answers. That's, that's why I keep asking you back. Um, so appreciate it and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks. You too. Let's do it again. Will do. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Thank you to Derek Jensen. And thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.